Blog Talk Radio. Yakuza! Yakuza! Yakuza Kick Radio! 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 This is the bulldozer, Matt Tremont. And if there's one place to listen to on the internet every Thursday, 9 p.m., Yakuza Kick Radio. Tremont says so. Who wants some? God help us, Jesus! God and baby, Jesus! Help us. Ladies and gentlemen of fucking America, this is Danny Havoc, and you have been listening to, or possibly are intending to listen to, the Yakuza Kick fucking radio. Fucking, yeah, Yakuza Kick radio. Hell fucking yeah! My name is Justice Payne, and you are listening to Yakuza Kick radio. You're coming to come on this is a brotherhood, and we all stick together. Like my nuts. I ain't scared of you, motherfucker. Yakuza Kick Radio, the best in internet wrestling radio, period, bar none, just like Adam Cole. Everybody's a cunt but me in the world. I don't know what it is. But you go to the back, and you tell your boss that there's a new Yakuza in town. And it's Yakuza Kick Radio, and we're taking over. Yakuza Kick Radio has risen from the ashes of bad internet radio and become the premier place for any independent professional wrestler to stop and record their voice. Well, this is Mr. Insanity Toby Klein, and if you're not listening to Yakuza Kick Radio, then you're weird. Oh, I don't like the cut of your jib, fella. This is Greg Excellent, Spirited Dragon of the Northeast. You're listening to Yakuza Kick Radio. If you're not, you're probably watching porn. You have this muted. You should be listening to it. Jason Mann. Where are Biggie and Tupac? Yakuza Kick Radio. Give a nigga rope on that cowboy, guys. All you have to do is listen to Yakuza Kick Radio, but you couldn't. Now look at that guy. You only fuck that. Black dude. Bullshit, man. Motherfucker. Fuck you. Fuck you and fuck you. Who's next? And now, ladies and gentlemen, for the introduction. Hosted by J. Cat Morris. You are now listening to Yakuza Kick Radio. Welcome to Yakuza Kick Radio. I'm back again, J.Cat Morris. Um, so, man, it, it's life has been really, really heavy for me. Um, you know, I'm sure I'm not alone in that. A lot of people have struggles. I'm not um, trying to paint a picture of a poor me, but in the same token, I'd imagine it's going to come off that way when I, uh, you know, just I, I'm on the receiving end of a lot, you know what I mean? Um, pause. But, um it's it's just been it's been overwhelming um i'm going to kind of lead you up into my race uh because that's the first thing that i kind of want to talk about but it takes a little bit of um backstory and um i guess i'll just elaborate there and see where we go so um you know leading up to the race i was really training hard physically i've been putting this content out 5 days a week as i told you i i kind of treated it like my job is as silly as any one of the videos I may have put out were, how um, you know meaningless any of them may have been, I took it all very seriously, and I, I 
I consumed myself with it. My mind was continuously based on, well, I had to make sure that I had a video ready to go for this day, and then, well, Tuesday's going to be cat day, and that was always the heaviest because I reopened a lot of wounds just to tell other people the stories of things that I've experienced and, and lives that I've saved. And um, I'd continue to roll these out because, you see, like when I first did the, the channel and I first went on there and started opening up about what I went through with my job and all these other things, uh, my initial intention, you know, uh, we have intentions and we have things that we plan on and, and how we want to execute things. And a lot of times in the long run, that's not the result we get because we go to do them and they become way more tedious or another, um, you know, variable presents itself where it's different than what you expected to experience. It's, as they say, uh, it's easier said than done. So my initial intent, you know, starting up the channel, all cats all the time, let's, you know, let's go. I, I want to, you know, go in here and I want to tell hundreds of stories of all these cats that, you know, I brought from completely unadoptable to in a home. And I have documentation of so much of this. And then the ones even that I don't have pictures of, I have such vivid stories that I can tell you that they're going to really paint a lot of pictures that are very, very real and very um, passion driven. And, um, but the problem about that is, is when you open those, you reopen these wounds and, um, you know, you get your couple hold for one second. Sorry, my Leo was outside of my room and he was not going to tolerate that for very long before he started singing about it. So I had to let him back in here so he can go lounge on the bed. Um, so, um, you know, it, it reopens wounds and it, it, it brings a small amount of appreciation because from what I've experienced, I don't get a whole ton of response. Uh, I may get a couple comments. I may get, uh, you know, 20-something likes. Uh, I'd fallen into a pattern on TikTok specifically because that's the one that really shows like an immediate response. And by the end of what I was doing last week, Every single thing I posted would get 200 plus views within like an hour of posting. And a lot of them would get 20 something likes. Some of them would get, you know, single digit likes. Some of them would get barely any. Some of them would have no rhyme or reason on why they got so many likes or so many views. And maybe it's just the algorithm and the timing and the this and that. But these are the, um, you know, these are the, the laps you run with things that mean everything to you. So as you put things out there and you put your heart into them and you, um, you know, you present them to the world, it, its impact comes back your way. You know what I mean? And this isn't me saying, like, I didn't get enough attention for what I posted. I mean, sure, there, there's levels to that where, you know, um, you know, a larger response to that. But I... I I truly believe that's something you have to build over time. So that I don't, 
I don't think that that's anyone's fault other than the fact that, you know, it takes time to build this thing to, to draw attention. And it's sometimes it's one video or one thing or it just hits the right algorithm or pops in a way where then it brings attention to your entire world. So, you know, it's the one video that gets you on and then everybody pays attention to everything you've ever done, you know. So I'm aware that, like, things like that need to happen in order for something to pop and the viral things. So I'm not saying along those lines, but like I'm saying, especially on my Tuesdays on my cat videos and things, um, when I, when I lay out one of these stories, um, you know, you get a feeling of pride on, you know, the remembering that you did these things and knowing that this cat is okay because of you, despite having such a negative, um, review from everybody else who looked at the cat or most of the people who looked at the cat and a lot of people who held great weight over their future and the only thing that kept them from making this cat future cat's future bad was me being in the equation and I forced my will on so many situations and put cats into homes because of it so as I continuously see the posts about this outside cat that got hit by a car this this cat that's out there struggling. I see a cat, and you know, on the way to the store, I'll see a cat run, and you know, these are the thoughts and the the trauma that comes rocketing back to me because right now I'm not part of the solution anymore. You know, um, you know, you get the part where yes, I I I won that battle. I remember what people said about this cat. I remember what people said that wasn't possible for this cat. I remember what was on the table. I remember how close euthanasia was for some of these cats. I remember how close people throwing them back outside was. I remember how quick they were to send off to a rescue who had no standards. So as long as they left our hands to a rescue, the next move that the rescue did wasn't really our fault or problem, and the upper upper side of things would wash their hands of it. And And if anything bad happened in that rescue, they'd back up and innocently, oh, I... Uh, we wouldn't have done that, that, you know, because they've now separated themselves from the situation, which in the long run ended up being the mission statement that they took on. They took on better somebody else than, than us. And as long as it passes through AHS's hands, their live release rate goes down on paper as a success. You could be signing these animals off to someone to just throw them in the lake. I'm not saying they're doing that, and I'd, I'd be pretty sure that they're not doing that. Um, but I, but what I'm saying is, is on paper, when they sign them over to whoever it may be, when they release them to whoever it may be, that animal leaves the system as a success. There's no euthanasia at the end where AHS specifically failed them. Now the blame can be put on wherever they go next. And I think it was in 2019 was the year that I would continuously look at and make an example of, um, maybe 2021. I, I know there were years that I would look at the stats on the local county shelters around here. And um, uh, the Manahawkin shelter and the, the uh, Jackson shelter, that's northern and southern Ocean County animal shelters. And um, some of the numbers that were reported, publicly reported from those shelters with upwards of 800 plus 
cats euthanized in one of those buildings in a year span. 800-something cats. And our numbers were sitting around 50 or 80 in a year. And those 50 or 80 were a cat hit by a car that was barely alive and brought in, rode up in the system that had to be humanely euthanized. That was cats that we had on medication there for all sorts of time and took a bad turn and had to be euthanized. That's, you know, Kitty City cats who, you know, the Kitty City program um, had cats that were willed to us and and things like that. Those cats weren't even allowed to be adopted out. They um, Their owners had paid for them when they passed to live out their lives in this big room, this big room. And when those cats would pass, it would still, you know, they would either pass or they would be euthanized. Those cats would go down in the system as a euthanasia. So you understand that, like, the majority of these euthanasias, they weren't – 100% of these euthanasias were not because of space restrictions. It wasn't because of space. We're on the side of that 800-plus on that other shelter – that was 90% because of space, because they ran out of space. There's systems that they have in those shelters. I've, I've met people that came into our shelter that used to work at the other shelters. And I know that one of the two um, has a policy. They have one big, long bank of cages in their one room. And, uh, you know, the cages are layered, you know, bottom, middle, top row, uh, big, long, top row, you know, 12, 12 across the top or something like that. And if one cat comes in and they need to use those top cages for the one cat, they do a massive euthanasia list. That's by standard. They do not want the top cages used, and the top cages are used as a barometer for when they need to use the euthanasia list. So this is what's going on in those shelters while we sat with 28 open cages open. We sat there. We had done so well that in the middle of the summer with kitten season popping, We'd be able to go up to our Newark shelter, come back with 18 cats, put them in our isolation area, and filter them out into our shelter over the next two weeks while still handling all of our local population and no euthanasia for space. So our level of success was through the roof. But Newark was completely out of control, and they had no, they had no handle on any of it. So when, the, when this new ownership came in, they came in to just clean house and just push everything out of the, the organization that they can because what was going on in Newark wasn't being able to be controlled at all. They had no ability to do what we were doing. And um, so they, they dropped the hammer on all three locations, even the, the one that we ran down here and had none of these issues and were like, I mean, we were the gold standard for what cat adoption should be for what cat acclimation rehabilitation all those things should be so this is why it became so insanely traumatic when this guy pushed his his will so hard jerry rosenthal pushed his will with everything he had to change thing and make make everything about numbers because he's a money guy he's a he's a money guy he was an investment banker he was up top of uh, Monmouth County SPCA, and shit hit the fan there. There was all sorts of um, bad things going on there. Uh, there were cats being euthanized before their seven-day hold, which is against the law. Um, there were racist allegations against uh, Buddy Amato, who worked underneath him. 
And when the shit hit the fan, Buddy Amato was fired or whatever the case was with him. But Jerry Rosenthal packed his fucking bags, resigned, and ran back to investment banking. So at some point, um, AHS, in their search for a new executive director, went and found Jerry. So Jerry re-entered the world of animals, and he's a money guy. You can't run a business of passion with the agenda of only moving numbers. It's not, they're two different things. They're two completely different things. A cat that comes in with an injury needs to be rehabilitated physically, and they need to be rehabilitated mentally. They need to be taught how to trust the world again. To cut that time short, the only thing you can do is to put them back out where their trauma began. You can put them back outside exactly where their trauma began. My cat, Herbie, to give you a quick story about the type of thing I'm talking about. My cat, Herbie, I have pictures of him with a puncture in his neck. He came in as a six-month-old kitten. That cat becomes a six-month quarantine because you have to make sure that whatever bit him isn't rabid. Um, So the six-month window that you have to just observe the animal and you can't put them up for adoption, and you have to just have them there. During that time, I had a cat that was throwing himself into the side, a kitten six months old, not even fully grown yet, that's throwing himself into the side of the cage when I try to touch him because he's so fearful about something grabbing him. Something, and we don't know what, had him by the neck as a baby. And you got you to gotta know that, a, a, you know, a neck wound is near fatal. That's just, he had a brush with death before he was full grown, you know. Um, and no reason to trust that it wouldn't happen again to him. So I continued to work with him and work with him, and he, he learned to trust little by little. Um, and he became a, a very sweet cat, but he also had his limitations. He had his, his, his angles that weren't really great for him. And new people are really scary to a cat that has trust issues. But the problem there also is new people is every single customer that wants to adopt. So you will get people that are willing to put in the time, the effort, the patience, but it doesn't come as quick as your super friendly cat adoptions. So when you put them all into the same basket because these cats aren't moving as fast as your your everyday cat adoptions, well, they become discarded because they're not part of the flow. They no longer flow the way that you would like to see things go. When a litter of kittens goes really fast, but their mother, who's been traumatized because she was trapped amongst giving birth to babies after, you know, a male cat just leaped on her and forced her to... <laughs> forced pregnancy on her because it's you know it's usually not a big romantic situation where they conceive it's usually pretty much rape so (laughs) you know a male cat jumps on her in the wild bites the shit out of her neck she's got a wound on her because of it as well as being pregnant she's somehow you know she's trapped either before or after she gives birth to these babies that she's now been you know um she has the burden she has not only you know the there, it's not just much of a joy of motherhood the way that it is for humans because they they have to survive. They have to struggle. They have to watch for things coming to kill their babies at all times. They have to go find food and leave them alone and come back and hope that somebody else didn't come take the kids or kill the kids. or And just the finding of food is, is a life-risking experience for them. But, you know, the world has painted the the – the life of an outside cat to be this, this rainbows and sunshine and bullshit. And it's not, it's not, it's not all of that. It's a struggle. It's, it's a, 
it's a frantic survival instinct based fight for your life. So when the cats come into captivity and they suddenly have to just go, Oh, let my guard down. Cause clearly everything's okay. No, their brain was on go mode and they had no safety in mind. They had just instinct is keeping me alive. So now you're in this little box and you have to trust this human that can't communicate to you with words or, you know, sounds that things are okay. Sure. You can, talk to the cats and convey a tone that makes them believe that there's a peace. There's a certain vibe you could set with the way that you talk. If you were to yell at a cat or, or speak in a certain higher tone or an aggressive tone, the fear would, you would see the fear as a response of the tone. That, so you can change the way a cat responds to you based on your tone and, you know, your genuine nature. But again, you can't just explain the situation. Well, hey, look, you were over here, and it was really dangerous, and now we got you over here and shit. You know, I mean, it, there's no way to just convey that. So it's like abducting a pregnant woman off the street with no ability to communicate with her that you're, you mean well, that you're bringing her to a safer space and not just this, you know, not just containing her and being her amongst her, her time of need. <laughs> that you're actually there for her in her time of need. These are things that we have to communicate through actions to these cats. And it's not an easy job, but that was my job that I did proudly for 21 years. So when the people on the higher end of it discount all the other layers of things that you deal with in order to get a cat to the other side because their life wasn't ideal. So like a Herbie who took all that time, Herbie spent over a year in the shelter. You figure the first six months is burnt off of just the quarantine. After that, I mean, you're going to have, I mean, probably some more time to continue to work with the cat, which I did. And, um, I mean, he had made tremendous progress even within that six months and also doubled in size. So not only is an all-black cat that's passed over many times, he's an all-black cat with some personality quirks. You know, the other thing is, is I saw the wound in Herbie's neck. I physically saw and took a picture of the wound in his neck and everything else. There's a one-year-old cat. There's a two-year-old cat that had the same thing happen to him as a kitten, but we never saw the wound. Those same cats are being judged as if there's no rhyme or reason, and the best that we can do for them is throw them back outside. Again, returning them to the trauma, returning them to the survival instinct that put them in this unstable mind frame, this, this fight-or-flight mindset. And I think it's cruel and it's terrible, and I think the entire um, structure of things needs to change. But the, the thing that traumatizes me the most is the fact that I made that change and we made that change because I had people following in my footsteps once I was supervisor there and it was all go and, and people were following what I said when I walked in there, I had a fantastic group of people who were following my lead and doing every single thing we could for those cats because the structure was for us to take care of every cat in that building and find the right homes for them no matter how long it took. And it didn't come at the cost of euthanizing other animals in order to make that happen. It didn't come at the cost of anything that we didn't already stand for. Our, our organization put out 
all these statements, and they're still putting out these statements as if they're doing the above and the beyond work, and we were. And most shelters put out that statement in the smoke and mirrors because behind it there's those cats that are being written off, those Herbies that are being written off. You know, I adopted Herbie, and, and I'm so proud to have him, and he's such a great member of our family. You know, he does so well with everybody and that the, he has his nervousness and shyness and, and places you can touch him and places you can't. If he's walking around on the floor, he's most likely not going to let you touch him. You can stop, bend down, put your hand down. He'll come up and sniff your hand. He's not going to do too much cuddling. He feels safest if you're on the couch, especially if Moe's up there. If Moe's up there, he'll be like, oh, Moe's up there, cool. And he'll hop up next to Moe, and now you can cuddle the shit out of him. And he drools like a St. Bernard. Like, I don't know what about this cat. I've had a handful of cats come through the shelter this way, and then when they get overstimulated and you're petting them, they just drool. You know, this cat, and he, he plays with the others. He's wonderful with everybody that way. And, you know, you just think that, there are people who are working overtime to try to get cats like him just dismissed. And it, it guts me. It rips my heart out to know that that's not part of my life, being the exception to what's going on all over New Jersey and all over the country. There's so many of these organizations that are claiming they are, they are collecting millions of dollars a year off of donations, off of people who think that as long as they donate to these organizations that are doing right, they're doing their part because, you know, they have a regular job. They can't dedicate their time the way these animal workers can dedicate their time to these animals. They can't, they can't be on the ground, you know, out there trying to help cats and catch cats and put them into better situations. They can't be the ones that are, you know, finding the stray dogs, returning them to their owners, finding, you know, taking the dogs that are surrendered and, and putting them in new homes and putting them in the right homes. They, they can't be part of that. And, and understandably, this world isn't just animal people. This world isn't just people who, who work in the animal field. And to be honest with you, it's mentally brutal. So I don't doubt, I don't, I don't begrudge anybody who doesn't involve them in the animal industry as far as work goes because the only people that are making money are the people up top. If you're able to go through full-on vet school and get yourself into being an actual vet, you can make money being a vet. If you can run an animal organization, you can make money running an animal organization. If you could be one of those persons, right-hand mans or woman, you could you can make a lot of money working in those but these are office jobs. These aren't the people who are passionate. These aren't the people who are legitimately shedding blood, sweat, and tears. I would bleed out of my hands and arms every single day I worked. And it wasn't because I was being attacked all the time. But when you're, you know, I have 21 cages to take care of in there. And when I would take a cat out, I'd pick a cat up. You know, I'd, I'd have my hand up in between their two front legs and the rest of their body draped kind of down my arm you know I could scoop them with one hand and have them that way so they're I'm holding them you know right under an arm and I, I bring them over there to the carrier sometimes just those back legs trying to get to their next spot you know get either into the carrier or into the cage I'm not going to heavily restrain the cat to move them from here to here and sometimes often their legs would pedal a little bit as they get close to their destination and they'd kick off my arm a little bit and I'd bleed and it's no big deal. You know what I mean? It was just part of my job. It was just, 
It was just an everyday thing. And some scratches would be worse than others. Like, holy shit, that's still bleeding and stuff. Some I have scars off of. Some I have, you know, and I have been, I've been bitten, I've been scratched. But this, these are all things that are just part of the job. And the heartbreak of the cats that you don't get to save, the ones that die, the ones that crash, the ones that you just tried everything you could and it didn't work. You know, the, the tears are very real. And I, if you don't know the sweat's real when you're doing six-day-a-week work and you work in a place where the fucking the heat goes out, the air goes out at least once a year, the water goes out, oh, water's going off, they got to fix a pipe, and you just got to, like, sit there and wait for an hour or two hours, and then it turns back on, and you got you to gotta hurry up and, and, and clean 21 cages with half the amount of time and scrub floors and do this, and you got customers coming in and anim, new animals coming in and... You know, I, it, there's there was always a hustle going on. There was easy days, but there was more hard days, I'd say. And uh, so, blood, sweat, and tears was something that, I mean, at the most legitimate way that I could ever describe a, a job that sheds blood, sweat, and tears was certainly the one I experienced. Um, but again, that's not where the money is. So I understand back to what I was saying. I understand people who donate money to these organizations to think that they're doing their part. But when the organizations are broken and doing the bare minimum, but collecting the maximum, there's no end to the amount of push. They're not, they're not now signing or, or, um, they're not discarding cats and, telling people, hey, we're doing a little less cat work these days, so, you know, we're not really in need as, as much donations. There's as heavy of a push, if not heavier, for donations because now this is all generated by money people. They're doing more events now. They're doing more beer-related beer events, uh, beer fests and trivia nights and, and, and all the things they can to bring people in to have just fun in the zoo and and experience and just rake in a shitload of money while on the back end of things they are cutting a large amount of cats out of their to-do list they're not they're not investing in the herbies the callies the the um the shopsies the legends the the wolverines the i mean the list goes on and on you you can go and watch the um the, the cat stories I've I've rolled out over my run on um, YouTube, and I really tried to detail as much as I could about the things, and I pulled all the pictures I could out of the my archives. You know, and there's layers to that too, man. Because every time I go back in those those things, every time I scroll back through my thousands of pictures and and videos and all that through my phone, I pass you know pictures of my dog who was killed by a car. I, for 10 years you know and and two years ago it, it was like she got out and within an hour she was hit and killed by a car she never got out in her entire time of being with us and now every time I open my Facebook I, I, I see on our local local Lacey Chatter page or the one from Waretown that's not that far or the one from Bayville that's not that far and it's Lost dog, lost dog, lost dog, lost dog. Return, yay, they're home, yay, they're home, yay, they're home. And those are awesome because I'm so glad that those people don't have to experience what I did. But you see a lot of re repeat offenders. You see a lot of 
haven't seen them in two days, and then they get home. I couldn't get an hour to find my dog. She was dead. We found her dead within the hour. It's it's one of those things that's really, really hard for me to get past, and when I look back through my phone and I cross pictures of my dog, I can't find peace with it. I just can't. So it's these things that I have to wade through just to get to the point of displaying um, presenting this cat video for people to hopefully start to understand the magnitude of what we did and what I did and what's now been taken away from me and been taking away from been taken away from those cats which is way bigger to me than just me that's when I see a cat outside and you know or I see any of this it's just knowing that their chances are a million times less because of what just happened in this area and just just this one little dot of the animal industry it's heavy and these things weigh on me a lot um so when i tried to say let's roll out cats 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 all the time it didn't work it just didn't work it was killing me it was you know again very little response and a wave of emotions that would hit me like, you know, you barely make it out. It's a wave that you're not supposed to be in where the lifeguards are telling you, like, it's not safe to be over there. This wave just keeps hitting you, and you're like, fuck, I almost died off of that one. And uh, I'm just going to go back into those waves because it's, uh, that's what I told them I was going to do on uh, Mondays or Tuesdays. Or, you know what I mean? Like, this is the thing where it's like just to get my story out there for people to hopefully understand somewhere, for me to somehow um, wind up with some form of opportunity or some kind of uh, path to my new future as it is amongst this cancer recovery is, is this enormous weight on what I've endured and just where I am. You know, there's there's a lot of days where I just wake up feeling completely worthless because I, I went from working six days a week, 21 years, to not at all. Not not at all. I don't have any work to go to. I don't have any anything. My my wife goes to work, and I sit here and and you know I right now it's you know me taking care of the house like a stay home dad and you know the the money that I got off of the, the the GoFundMe allowed me a couple more months of safety where I was able to pay my half of the mortgage to more than my half of the mortgage to keep this shit afloat. And following that, that was, that was depleted through that. And then following that was me cashing out my, um, you know, you have like that whatever vested interest, uh, you know, whatever thing in the in the job. So I got like eight grand back off of that. Well, I'm down to four now. You know, this is off of me paying my side of things and and doing what I what I can while I wait for all this disability stuff that supposedly, you know, they tell you it could take 154 days is the is the average that it takes people, and it's like yo. But even that, that's only whatever amount of money, and then that's that. Then, then what's next? There's a tremendous amount of fear and uncertainty. Um, and again, my mental, 
stability is not great. So it's not like, um, you know, going and starting off. Because physically, I can do anything. I, I'm I'm pretty unstoppable physically. Um, I, I can work any job. I'm not the, – the work itself is not the thing that I fear whatsoever. The mentality of just doing, like, a regular something else and dealing with, you know, I mean, retail is out of the question. There's no way I'm dealing with random people that way. Um, but, you know, it wouldn't even be fair to an organization, to a boss of any sort, to bring my baggage to the table to say that this is this is what I am now and I'm miserable being here. There's no fucking way that this is my calling. I don't give a fuck about this. And then dedicating myself. I'm not going to – there's no way I'm going to be able to give my best self because that's what I found too is when I worked you know where I was I'd give my six days a week I'd give my blood sweat and tears I I would give everything I could but you know I saw in jobs prior to that that my bad days I didn't give a I thought I woke up I thought about the boss and I was like man this guy's gonna do without me today and that was that you know um and I just didn't see the drive I saw in myself, the never give up drive. Like I said, I, you know, I'm 10 years sober now, but through my alcoholism, I drug myself into work, a fucking corpse, you know what I mean? I, six days a week. I drank fucking 15 beers every night and sometimes hard alcohol on top of it and all that. And I drug myself in there in the morning because the cats meant the world to me. There was no stopping anything that was going on in my head, anything that was going on physically, anything that was going on in my mind, because that meant more than anything. And that was where I found my drive to say, this is clearly my purpose because this is where you get the best of me. This is where you get my dedication. This is where you get my devotion because the work that I'm doing matters. It's not just a paycheck. When things become just a paycheck, you get a lot of people who just phone things in, you, people that work at half speed, and I never wanted to be one of those people. And I realized that I was, that I, that I was one of those people that would pick their spots because if I wasn't having a good day, I couldn't justify going above and beyond because for who? Just for the boss? Like, that, you know, there's a ceiling on what money I'm going to make here and everything. You could turn and, and look at your coworkers doing less than you were doing on your best days. So on your worst days, you're not trying to excel past that. But when it was about animals, you would because it didn't matter what the fuck, you know, it didn't matter what went on with anybody else. It didn't matter what was going on with you. This cat needed your help today. And if you don't show up tomorrow, that cat will be waiting for you to get back because that cat's best chance is you being by its side, you being its best advocate, you being its best handler, um, its, its rehabilitator. Its chance at a future was you. So you tell me how to stop that because I didn't know how. And you know how you stop it? Cancer. So that's, that's what I'm saddled with. That's, that's a, a good part of of what I deal with. As I approached my race, it was probably about two days before, you know, I planned on talking about all sorts of wrestling and everything and just bullshit and burying people. And I just realized I'm like 50 minutes into this thing. I might just stay on this um, and do another one on wrestling because, you know, I, I surely don't put up a lot of content on here. And, um, you know, but anyway, um, so about two days before my race, um, I started getting really short of breath. I had talked to a woman years ago 
and we had connected because she had worked in a Newark shelter. Her name was Samantha, and she she identified with a lot of the things that I was going through. She understood a lot of what I was going through. So I had a couple, like, long, long, three-hour, middle-of-the-night conversations with her because I could pour my heart about what was going on in the shelter, and she understood it. She understood the mechanics of it. She understood... Um, you know, what had to be done, um, different people's opinions and how they would weigh on animals. She understood being kind of alone in the fight on a lot of levels to get to the next step for animals, you know, to be the one that believed in them when others didn't. She understood that. She dealt with a lot of that. And she dealt with a lot of the trauma, too. And I remember talking to her through some of my struggles. And, um, you know, we've kind of lost contact now, but um, and, you know, she took a different path, and she actually, she actually ran away from the animal field, you know, um, I don't want to say ran away in a bad way, but she got herself out of there, because it was, it was killing her mentally, um, and really putting her in a bad physical state, too, and one of the first things she asked me when I was going through this stuff at a pretty deep level while still there, is she said, can you breathe? I said, yeah, what the fuck's I got to do with anything? Yeah, I'm good. Well, uh, a couple of days before my race, I got faced with the the reality of what anxiety can do to you if it it becomes overwhelming. You know, I was diagnosed with asthma years ago, but it never really um, took hold of me too heavily. And it was weird because it was like it came out of nowhere. You know, I smoked for 14 years and then quit and um I I started to have breathing problems and and that's why I quit I was you know I was having a little breathing problems in the shelter and then when I went um I said you know let me go outside and get a breath of fresh air because man I'm having problems breathing and I went outside and the first thing I did because when we would go out at work our way to smoke cigarettes for the most part would be we would take a bag of garbage down, you know, so we weren't just standing outside smoking and stuff. So no one was going to have any problems with what we were doing as long as we were doing some kind of work, you know. So stuff like that, I, you know, so I went outside, let me take my garbage out, get a breath of fresh air. First thing I do, throw a bag of garbage over my shoulder and light a cigarette. I took one pull and I fucking, a, a thought just went through my head and said, what am I, a fucking idiot? And I threw the whole fucking cigarette. I dotted the whole fucking cigarette. And that was the last cigarette I took a drag off of. You know? Um, so, but I think that was the onset of my asthma or whatever was causing whatever that was. I went to the asthma center after that. And I, I went through some of their testing, and the problem was is everything they were trying for me, and, and they would give me this rescue inhaler, and the rescue inhaler wasn't working for me. I was, you know, it was like breaths were coming, like you would normally just sit there and breathe. You wouldn't have any thought about it. But every once in a while, every 10th breath or, you know, 12th, whatever whatever it was, a couple minutes, you certain, you wouldn't get a full breath. It would go like... 60% of the way and then it would stop 
and you would feel shorter breath and shorter breath. A lot of times it would trigger a yawn because the yawn is the only thing that would get you up and over that full breath, and then seemingly after that your breathing would resume normal. But it was very panicked with the short breaths, and, like, I would have stuff like that, and that was the struggle that I would have. So when they started running tests on me, they would bring me in there, and it'd be like, all right, so we're going to have you breathe in this stuff through this tube, and it's going to make it harder for you to breathe initially so we can measure this, and then we're going to give you something to reverse it. And I'm telling them, like, I'm currently having breathing problems. So you telling me that you're going to make it worse even temporarily sounds like I'm going to fucking die. <laughs> because even when you reverse it, I'm still not having a good time. So, And that's kind of what it was, and I went through it. And they supposedly reversed it, but that even that reversal and where I wound up was having a harder time breathing for at least three days than I did prior to walking into their office and with them still not really having any answers. So there was some of that that I just didn't follow up on. Again, I was working six days a week. It was like back to work, man. Like that was like, you know, losing hours of work just to go there, just to take these tests, to be worse off, to... You know, they give me these two inhalers, take this one three times a day, take this when you need it. I did both, nothing changed, you know. And then I just went, I got to deal with this shit and fucking go. That's it. And I continue to push myself and push and just do whatever the fuck I do to just keep going. And, you know, after that, I would do mountain races with, you know, 100 degree heat in the Poconos in July, the, the super Spartan races on the Pocono Mountains were the fucking most brutal heat. I've probably ever experienced in my life because there's like no shade except for the little woods parts that you run through on the mountain. But like those open spaces where you're carrying something up just like a sun-beaten mountain. You're carrying a log up the sun-beaten mountain and have to come all the way back down it or crawl under barbed wire for like a hundred feet just to, <laughs> you know, just to get up and now run back up that hill. Like it's, it's a lot. So, um, I, I really did put my lungs to a test on a lot of levels, and and I struggled in some avenues, but I, I survived. You know, I didn't I didn't hit any walls where I had to be in the hospital. I just took it as sometimes I struggle, and and I found that like flowery scents and shit like that would really fuck my breathing up for like a day or two. Um, it would leave me short of breath at the, in the moment, and then for the next day or two, I would just kind of struggle. So I just avoided scents like that if I had. You know, people around me and any, you know, consistent clip, they'd know, like, no crazy heavy perfumes. Don't light the room up with glade or anything for any reason. Like, you know, and over time, that's kind of uh, subsided as well. You know, now, like, I have candles and shit. I never owned candles or anything like that. But I'm more like the fruity scents and stuff like that. The flowery scents a lot of times still do bother me. So I just leave that alone. But if I get into, a, like, a car and, you know, someone's got heavy fucking air fresheners, the windows are all up, and you're just, like, tasting the fucking lilac and shit, like, that's that's going to fuck my breathing up, you know? Um, outside of that, though, again, like, I do all the physical stuff I'm doing. There's no rescue inhalers happening. There's no nothing. I smoke weed. There's none of that, you know, bothering me. Um, when I first started back um, smoking... I started back with the fucking cartridges, and those fucking bothered me. And I think that was more contributed to the, uh, I think they were more or less like the bootleg shit, because I wasn't going through any legit sources, and now I am. Um, 
which I have dispensaries and stuff like that, and I have other avenues that are way more legit than with what I dealt with before. Um, so I don't really have any direct ties between my, you know, my smoking and that because it doesn't, it doesn't coincide. It doesn't follow up. Like I, I take like a, a hit off of something. I don't have a shorter breath after that. But if I walk into a room with the fucking flower shit, I have shorter breath immediately. So it's, you know what I mean? It's, and again, like I said, the flower stuff has really subsided. I, I've been to Longwood Gardens in a room full of flowers. I've been through, you know, I've been in people's cars that smell like this. I, you know, I have three daughters that love perfumes and shit. So I, I, it's been less of a thing for me overall. You know, I say all that just to say that it's it kind of came out of nowhere um, a few days before my race and heavy. And it was like, yo, um, this is fucking terrible. And the anxiety had been very blatant on so many other levels that I went, oh, wait a minute. This is that. And it made sense because then I could tie it into the triggers that I was having with the mental things that I was struggling with. And then I, you know, I would read something or someone that just cats belong outside. They're spewing off on the fucking Facebook or something. And I'm trying to make a point, but these people are just so thick headed. And then, you know, fucking three posts later, here's another dead cat up the road. And it still doesn't budge these people's opinions and cats are out there dying and suffering. And I just can't even help them. So I would tie things in with that with like that's when that started happening and that's where that started becoming more of an issue. Well, regardless of the case, I was two days away from doing two races in one day. The Savage Race out in Albrightsville, Pennsylvania um, had um, their, spar- their um, Savage Race. The main one was five plus miles, 30 plus obstacles. Their Savage Blitz race was three-plus miles, 20-plus obstacles. So it was a short and a long version. And if you did the two races within a year's time or on the same day, um, you would get the Savage Syndicate medal, meaning you completed more of, uh, two, two or more of their races in one year. And I decided I was getting that medal that day. I hadn't raced... In over a year, the last race I did was um, Bone Frog in June, I believe, June or July, July of um, last year with colon cancer because I was fully dealing with shitting blood prior to that race. And I wouldn't get my surgery until October. But the last race that I did was that. So now I was going into this savage race you know, my abdomen was cut, you know, they, they removed the foot of my colon and, um, I couldn't lift 10 pounds for two months. So I went into that race knowing that, man, my core might not handle all this monkey bar shit. My, I don't know how I'm going to handle the, the distance. I am not a runner. I couldn't get myself to even get running. I did a lot of physical training. So all of that helped me tremendously. But, and then on top of that, the breathing difficulties and and I've mentioned before, but um, through the the issues that I've dealt with and the this the um, you know all of these things, it, it reprogrammed my my sleep schedule to I don't go to sleep at until three o'clock every night, and I can't 
I, I just can't force myself to go to sleep. I can't fix my my sleep pattern. I just and I remember it was probably a month or two before the race, and Nina was like, "Yeah, you better uh, you know start going to sleep earlier because that race, you know, we got because <laughs> the race is like." 9.50 was my start time, but Albrightsville, Pennsylvania is two and a half hours from here. So, you know, I mean, that, that was like waking up at 4 o'clock in the morning. Well, I go to sleep at 3, and I somehow lucked out and got myself to sleep that night at 2.30, and I woke up at 4.30. So... I even exceeded expectations of when I got to sleep, but I was dealing with my breathing all night. I was way in my head about not doing well or or whatever it was. or And I had two and a half hours of a ride to just marinate in what I had, and that's what it was. So two hours of sleep, and I I went out there two and a half hours away, and and we traveled further than I slept that night, and uh, no sleeping in the car or anything like that, and then uh, got there and and did the thing. Um, the first race, it was brutal. Um, I've never had it where I had to stop before obstacles, and and I did. Um, I was breathing really really bad through this race. Um, I I would. I would have to run up on an obstacle or walk up on an obstacle and then just stop and just kind of take a knee, like take, you know, take a step back from where the people were lining up for the obstacle and just take a knee and just kind of get my brain together. And and I had to scream at myself in my brain that I could fucking do this because two hours of sleep, my depression, my anxiety, my lack of, uh, or my absence from obstacle course racing, all those things were telling me I couldn't. And I found ways. I found ways through this course, and I did really fucking well as far as I'm concerned with obstacles. I crushed the rig. The rig is, um, and then again, I haven't touched anything even close to that in over a year because I don't have a, I don't have the facilities for that. So, like, the rig is like uh, rings, like, you know, the Olympic ring kind of deal. And then there's, like, these, like, long tassels of, like, ropes that you have to grab from the rings. And then you go from that to, like, a handlebar to, like, a pipe. And you have to you have to traverse from this to this and transition from this different type of grip to that different type of grip to get to the end and never touch the ground and ring the bell at the end. And I crushed that shit. I fucking murdered it. Um, you know, um, but this shit was no joke. This shit was no joke to me. I threw up during the race at one point or another. I was trying to pick up speed throughout one of the, like, more woodsy areas of the race. And I had to just pull off to the side because my fucking head was spinning and I could just feel. And I felt like I was going to throw up, like, every bit of fucking breakfast and water and everything I had in my body. And it only ended up being, like, a little bit. And, and, and I like, paused for another 30 seconds and was like, well, if that's it, then I'm going. And then I just fucking got back up and just went going. And that was probably, you know, mile two and a half out of the fucking 
five plus that I had to go on the first race. So, um, and I, you know, you, you people, you're down there like that, you're down on the fucking hunched over and shit on the side, and people are like, you all right, man? Yeah, and you just don't want them to stop. You just don't want to, <laughs> I'm good, I'm good, and of course I'm not fucking good. I wouldn't be over there if I was. Um, so, you know what I mean? And I just wanted to get through it and keep going, and I was able to. Um, the other thing you should know about this race, it it is, I, I, let me just say flat out, Savage Race is my favorite race that I've done in the 10 years that I've been doing these obstacle course racing, uh, minus 2020, which obviously I, there was no racing. Um, they, um, they have some really, really creative obstacles. The other thing that's awesome about this Albrightsville um, venue is it's like one of the most amazing paintball courses that I've ever seen in my life. And I'm not a paintball guy, so it's not like I've been to a bunch but anyone you describe this to or you'd go and you'd see parts of this, they go, holy shit, there's, like, full-on, like, towns built within this thing, like, fake, like, setup towns. Like, there's one that's, like, a west town. So, like, as we run through this, the course is guided through it. So as we run through this, obviously there's no paintball on those days and shit. Um, so as we run through it, it's like this, this like, plywood and, and – uh, you know, two by four, like built up frames of like a whole town that you can go up and down. And it's almost like running down the middle of like a main street because there's these buildings with these windows all around that you can go in and you can, you know, that's what they shoot at each other out these windows and up the stairs and down the stairs and around the corner. And, and then there's another area that looks like a crashed out, like airplane hangar where there's like half of airplanes that you go through and there's fucking like, um, they have another place where there's like those storage containers and they're cut out in ways where you can run through them like hallways and side doors and, and places to dip and dodge. And, um, there, I mean, there's like a medieval area that looks like castles and shit that you're all in. There's parts in the woods where there's all these little like stash spots where you could hide out and fight against the, you know, it, it's really incredible. Like there's, there's like a, a no firing zone you run through where it says, like, no firing, and it's, like, the town square, and you can see, like, the shops are closed, but they actually sell, like, ammunition there and refreshments and shit, but it's, like, right outside of the places you'd be firing, but you go into this no-fire zone, and you could re-ammo and refuel and all that shit. This shit looks amazing, and I've never even had any interest in, in um, paintballing ever. But just to, like, run through that space, it's one of the coolest things that I've ever done in obstacle course racing because it's just the atmosphere is, is unlike anything. And um, so you got to know that about the course. And I, I just highly, highly recommend that if you have any interest in doing obstacle course racing and you're in that area, I'm pretty sure they're already locked in for next year or two for 2024 in that same location. If you're anywhere near that area, just go and do this. Do the short one. Do the three, three plus mile one. Get yourself that that um that uh, Savage Blitz medal. You know what I mean? And you know, push yourself. You could do all this shit. You know, I I I pushed myself physically starting at like 35 years old. You know, I dabbled in other shit. But I never had a physical athletic childhood because I was discouraged from doing so, and I didn't know it existed in me. Um, I found bits and pieces of that when I turned 18, 
and I went up north and I was, you know, running around with other guys who were in high school still. They were still doing wrestling. They were still doing track. They were still doing football and basketball and all this shit. And we would play recreationally outside of them being at school, and I'd be kind of keeping up with some of it, you know what I mean? Which to me was like, oh, I'm, I can compete in these things. These are things that they're training for, and I'm casually joining the fray and not doing bad at this or excelling at that. And it's like, oh, wait a minute. And I started to realize for myself that, wow, this is a thing. But then years of me being, you know, um, experimental with drugs and uh then deep into the alcoholism, and uh, I went through, I went through a little stint of pill addiction, um, you know, for a while, uh, and then the, the alcoholism was the heaviest thing I ever dealt with, and that, um, as far as substance, as far as demons and stuff, that grabbed a hold of me heavier than anything, um, you know, and um, that. Uh, until I turned that off and really focused myself on me and what I can actually do and how far I can go, that was 35 years old. I just passed 10 years of sobriety from alcohol, and that's, you know, and I spent five of that straight edge because I wanted to make sure that I can live life without substance, that I didn't need anything to continue. I wasn't going to patch something else in and call that my new life. So I made sure that I abstained from everything. There was no weed. There was no anything like that. Um, and after five years, I reexamined that. And that's when I found my, my different focus with that, where it's not about getting all fucked up anymore. Now it's about, you know, kind of uh, using it as more of a medicine, using it more to medicate um, the anxiety and depression, and uh, which does, you know, again, it's not a fix. You know, medication for the most part is a band-aid. It's something to kind of mask what's going on. It doesn't actually repair. So you're going to have problems regardless of that. It doesn't mean that, oh, it's not fixing me. Well, you know, it's helping. It's it's helped to give me um, different um, new gears that I didn't have before. It's really weird because years ago um, when I was smoking on a regular basis and blunt after blunt and this and that, and... Um, you know, when I got heavy into drinking, after a while, um, the weed, I, I just felt like was holding me back because more than anything, it was making me tired. You know, um, I definitely didn't have the access to like indica, sativa, you know, all the things now. And I'm more of an indica guy anyway, even when I'm working with it, I'm doing anything I want on, on indicas. Um, so it's not a matter of like, oh, well, maybe you were just smoking indicas. You know, it's still like, Again, knowing myself now, knowing that I, I react way better to indicas than uh, sativas, that um, that that wouldn't have really been much of the case. But anyway, it was making me more tired than energetic, and it made me want to do less. Where, you know, I was drinking beers and shit, and I could run around mowing the lawn, planting flowers, and fucking doing this and this and this, you know, with those fucking beer muscles. And you know, through the beginning of that shit, it would be a lot of fun, and towards the end of it, it would be more destructive, you know, that's just the way alcohol works, everything's a good time until it's not, and then it's a really bad time, um, <laughs> you know, people who struggle with it, that's just, you know, everything gets brighter, and then way darker than it was when you started, and that's just, you have to have to, you really have to realize that, and see, like, if that's the pattern it's traveling in, that's probably not a good ex that that's not a good way to uh, treat yourself. Um, so um, I just kind of like 
separated myself from that because it just wasn't being my thing at the moment, even though it was always my thing far more than alcohol was. And um, so I was just like, you know, financially it was costing too much, and the end result was I was getting more tired off of it, and I just kind of left it alone. So I had, like, kind of left that alone mm, probably six months, eight months before I quit drinking. Um, So when I went, like I said, I went straight edge for five years. I didn't, I didn't want to pick the weed up right away on the the back end of that because I just would have went a hundred miles an hour with it, and I would have tried to fill using the alcohol to fill, and I didn't want that at all. I had to learn how to live life again on different terms. But now on the other side of things, now like I'm able to like, um, you know do a whole shitload through the day and, you know, smoke. And then I I maintain my focus and I can lock in even deeper on something that I was about burnt out on. And now I'm back in and now I could do another three hours of work on something. You know, I could really extend my um, productivity through it. And that's, that's why it works for me. And that's why um, that's, that's where I'm at from here on out. Because it does, it does work very productively, uh, productively, through, you know what I've what I've found for it. So, just a, just an example or, or explanation on on all of that stuff for pretty much no reason. But um, and also just to say that the you know the races and the you know these things didn't even become a thing for me until I figured out what I can do or until I said, hey, let's see what you can do. And that started at 35 years old. Um, so believe me, you could do this shit. This isn't just me. This isn't just, you know, it, it, you can do this. Um, so I got through the first race. I ended up coming in like 30th of my uh, age group, which isn't great. I mean, to me, I don't really know how many was in my age group, but, um, you know, I mean, there's some people to blaze through it, but I knew time-wise my my whole thing on that first race was just surviving it. My whole thing was just I need to get through this. There's no way I quit, and that's number one concern. And I'm not just going to walk around obstacles because you see enough people doing that shit. I don't know why they would sign up for a race that costs what these race costs. Um, luckily, like I said, mine was passed over from the year before because I got COVID and then cancer and all of that shit. And, um, you know, I was lucky enough to be able to, to, um, transfer my membership or my, uh, registration from last year to this year. So I didn't have to pay those fees or whatever, but I couldn't imagine having to pay for this race and then being like, yeah. I'm not really big on obstacles. Like, these motherfuckers, some of them are jogging, and some of them are just straight walking through the course and flat-out walking around the obstacles. And I'm like, bro, a five-mile walk for over $100 sounds insane to me. And then someone's going to give you a medal saying that you made it through all of these obstacles and you're going you're gonna to have pride in that and show it to other people? I don't know how to do that, man. You know? I skipped Sawtooth on the second race because, well, I'll explain it to you. I'll get to you. Um, so um, I crushed pretty much everything. These obstacles were, were I, I was hitting them. And, um, you know, I, I was very proud of my completion of obstacles. 
on that first race. Now, you know, I, I struggled so heavily through the whole thing that it was like, man, I got a whole nother one ahead of me and it's shorter, but in the same token, it's, it's another. And, um, so I went into that second race and somewhere, somehow I found my wind and maybe it was because this anxiety was the thing that was causing it. And once I had that first race under my belt, I think a lot of the weight made it came off of my shoulders mentally where I had a little bit better of a handle on it. You know, I had a better, um, just, uh, assurance of myself. I've seen everything they had to throw at me. There were no obstacles I was going to see the next race that I hadn't seen already. There was no what ifs. There was no unknowns. There was just, I have another race to do and it's not as long as the first one, but man, my fucking arms are blown up. And I knew like that, that part of things was going to be really tough, but I went in. Now this second race, I came in ninth in my age groups. And now that's, that's something I could be a little bit more proud of. Um, but either way, I'm proud of the entire thing because two hours of sleep and everything considered, I completed those two races in one day and got my Savage Syndicate medal. Um, I'll tell you, the, the Sawtooth is a motherfucker. It's uh, monkey bars that go up in like a triangular um, pattern. It goes up like it peaks up top, you know what I mean? So, so you go up and then you come down and all monkey bars, no touching the ground. Um, last time I did this one, it was in 2019 and it was, um, it was over water and the, um, the sawtooth was way steeper. So your, your up climb was way steeper. Also the coming down was way steeper. So, you know, your drop from that was, you know, it's, the coming down part isn't nearly as hard when it's steep, I don't think, because you're kind of dropping the, your weight, you know, rather than lifting your weight. Um, this was like a, a way less incline. There was way less of a, a grade on it. So, and it wasn't over water. It was over ground. Um, so, to me, this made the entire thing harder. Clearly not the way up, but the way down very much because you were doing closer to a standard monkey bar, even towards the last of your rungs, which when your arms and your grip are blown up, it's fucked up. So the other part that sucks is this is the very last obstacle of the race. This is the one that's right before. And I wouldn't say that that sawtooth is a harder obstacle than the rig. I wouldn't say sawtooth is a harder obstacle than uh, we had these, like, planks. To, they were, like, two-by-eighths or two-by-sixes and wet, and you just had to climb, you know, just use your hands like monkey bars, but only all you had was a plank to kind of shimmy your hands all the way down, and then you had to transfer in the middle to a cross beam and then back to another two-by-eight and get all the way across. And, again, no no hitting the ground, no nothing like that, and – and I did that too, you know. I didn't fail on that one either. Um, and all the shit's on video on YouTube if you want to go check it out. Um, at least a lot of it. Um, but uh, Sawtooth, they put last obstacle of the race directly after they have like a, I think it's like a 25 foot water slide, which is you know it's an obstacle in itself because it's pretty much like straight down. And, you know, you sit on the edge of that shit going like, oh, fuck. And it just dumps you into this muddy-ass water and shit. So as soon as you get out of that muddy-ass water about 
is Sawtooth. So now you're dripping in water, your grip is fucked, and you have to do monkey bars that go up and back down and shit. So, yeah, this is this is a motherfucker. And I knew on the second race around, I, I did the majority of obstacles, and the one, I failed on one where I got almost to the end, and my grip just fucking wasn't there, and my arms felt just so blown up. And I and I almost got it, and I just came up short. And I don't remember which one of those it was, because um, I completed most of my obstacles even on my second race. But then when I got to that and I, I hit that, I just knew like, oh no, sawtooth ain't happening because the grip that I needed to get through it the first time was like everything I had, and I even had to switch techniques halfway through because normally I do like a monkey bar swing. And if you grab the front hand, you just make sure your grip is legit. And when you let go of your backhand, you're going to swing forward with your momentum. And if you're able to grip with that front hand strong, let go of that backhand, your momentum is just going to kind of carry you through these monkey bars. And the only thing that's really, really important about that entire thing is the grip on that front hand. So if the grip on that front hand starts to be uh, jeopardized, when you let go of that backhand, you're coming off those fucking bars sideways. You know what I mean? And I've, I've had that happen in the past, too, and that, that hurt. Um, so I'm aware of that now. And, you know, I had to switch to, like, a kind of walking with my hands, one, 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 instead of doing the big swings at about halfway through. But I knew that second time was just not going to fucking happen. So that's the only obstacle that I actually walked around was the very last one of the second race. Um, so... Um, I felt very happy with it. Um, getting through it was was one of my proudest accomplishments physically, just because of what I just went through: the sleep, the cancer, the the anxiety, the breathing, the doubt, the everything, everything put together with me coming out of the end of exactly what I showed up for. I felt very, very satisfied in that. Um, I felt like. Um, that's exactly what I went out there for. So, um, yeah, um, good stuff for what, you know, for what it's going to be for me, uh, really good. Um, but, yeah, besides that, um, I don't think if there's anything else in that realm to touch. Uh, I don't know. But, um, so, yeah, I, I mean, it's just right now I'm struggling so hard mentally that um, – I, I kind of made the decision last week, this past weekend, that I was putting my content on hold um, because I had to stop running these these laps, um, these mental laps of needing this necessity to get something there, to get something there, to get something there, while my struggles really just continued to ramp up behind all of it. Um, you know, like I've said before, like I would display on Monday, I would display uh, physical and uh, motivational stuff. And Tuesday I would do cat stuff. And then Wednesday I would do gardening stuff. And Thursday chicken stuff. Friday would be miscellaneous. Um, though, like all of those things happened on all those days, but I had to capture them on those specific days despite still doing my chicken pen every single day of the week, despite still taking my care of my cats every day of the week, tending to my garden every day of the week. But, but like that day that I was going to present it was only going to be on that one day. So I had to, sometimes I would, I'd have to put through my mind like, okay, so 
I'm going to do this now. Is there anything while I'm doing this that I should capture for the next time I'm going to need it? And then is that going to hold up? And then sometimes you go back and you'd watch it and it wasn't good enough or you didn't think it was good enough or it didn't reach your standards. And now you delete that and you put it again. And, you know, and all of this shit is on a phone where I have more cracks in this fucking phone than, than fucking Harlem. Um, <laughs> I need a new phone so bad I don't even know how it fucking... Uh, records anymore, because this motherfucker, the whole back of it is shattered, there's like a little line across one of those, there's like the three big camera lenses, and then there's like a dot up top, and a dot down the bottom, and there's cracks over those other two dots, and I don't know how it doesn't really affect my picture a whole lot, but it seemingly does okay, um, but there's a lot of cracks, a lot of shit going on there, and, um, and I don't know, but anyway, um, I just... And, it, you know, the thing is, too, is I don't, I can't even say, like, yeah, hey, well, I needed a break, and it's nice and restful, because now every day feels like a failure that I'm not living up to the standard of this content that I was putting up with, I, or I was putting up. I, I did six months straight of Motivational Mondays, despite my struggle on cancer recovery and everything else, I did at least six months of those. Every single Monday, no matter how I was feeling, I did my best to try to motivate other people, because... I truly feel that if we come together as people who are struggling, we will we will rise and we will have a new group. We will have a support system that's un, unfazable because we know what each other have gone through. We know that's why I've reached out to some people that I saw that might have been struggling a little bit like me. And it doesn't have to be just like me, but even if it's it's a little bit like me, if there's some parallel there. And and I've found that people who have struggled or people who do struggle understand the struggle more more than people who don't um there's a lot of people who don't understand the struggle that will just speak at you in ways that don't help anybody and if anything it's it's it comes off as more insulting or belittling to your struggle and it becomes something that is just not useful you know what i mean um the last thing you want during a struggle is an argument and i'm willing to opt out of relationships if they only exist in argument and uh found myself in that position quite a few times and i've opted to just part ways because um i can't afford an argument anymore mentally um things can go in really bad directions for me very fast i'm very strong physically um i don't mean this is a threat to anybody i don't mean this is uh watch out for me or i'm a badass or anything like that but i know what i'm capable of and I know the thread that I'm hanging on mentally, you know what I mean? Um, I know my my intention to do right, my intention to take the high road, my intention to be positive, my intention to be a better person, to be a great representative for my children, to um, continue to do things that I can be proud of myself for. But I know that there's only so much I can take. And if you see the things that have been put on my plate and know that, like, there's just not a lot of pushing I could take without responding, you know. Um, so I try to make sure that I don't put myself in situations that I'm going to fail in. I don't, set up I don't set myself up for failure. If I see discussions that go on between myself and another person that continue to go in a negative direction or if I can continue to hit dead ends every time I contact somebody, there's a chance that that's just going to go away and I'm going to part my ways with that because it's not healthy for me, it's not good for me, and I, I can't imagine they're having a great time either, because it doesn't feel like our relationship is um, 
you know, something that's going to feed each other, motivate each other. I don't think, um, you know, a lot of people just aren't right for each other. They're just not, they don't line up with each other's um, needs, wants, um, their vibe. You know, I really feel that um, the vibe is is almost 100% of what I need right now as far as a a companion, a friend, uh, uh, whatever it is. It's someone who matches a vibe and an intention on keeping happiness at the forefront of things. It keeps positivity on the forefront of things. And we're going to deal with negatives. We're going to deal with things that go downward. We're, we're all going to have our struggles. I'm not saying that... I, I can only accept people around me that are perfect. I'm saying I, I can only accept people around me that are going to benefit my mental stability in any given way, whether it be um, just conversation of someone that I enjoy to converse with, um, someone who I can talk to about this or talk to about that. But again, if I keep seeing negative results in a conversation, if I keep seeing um, just not getting what I what I what I wanted out of the situation, and again, this isn't like in high expectations. This isn't where like, hey, you know, anyone that donated any less than fifty dollars to me could go fuck themselves. This isn't what I'm not. You know, I'm really keeping my expectations pretty low. Um, but like, you know, if I get to, like, just say I were to get together with somebody to hang out. And everything that was going to come out of their mouth was drama and talking about other people and talking about all the negatives and things like I don't want to be around that that energy anymore. I just don't. Um, you know, if I could be around somebody that has a, a positivity and a and a happiness to things and is able to converse about things, and I'm not saying shit talks off the table. You know who I am, but I'm saying there can't be something that we dwell in. It can't be where we're worried about what somebody else said about us at all times because to me that doesn't mean anything. You know, we've talked on this show about people who have said things about me and I'm I'm honestly going to keep every bit of all of that off of this show because we are an hour and a half in and um, I will do a whole other show uh, most likely this week because I'm not putting out content otherwise um, on just wrestling shit talk because I have a lot of it. I have a lot of people to bury and just stuff that I just think is absolutely fucking ridiculous. And um, I'm just going to give you my opinion on it because that's what this has always been is just my opinion. So when you hear the way that I speak about my life, that's my opinion on how I see things and how I've absorbed things. This is how I've, I've made my way through the things that I've done and the things that I'm doing. But that doesn't change... Um, anything for anybody, then it shouldn't, um, but anyway, um, but you've seen the way that people have talked about me, and it does weigh on me, it does, but, but it depends now, it doesn't, it's not everybody anymore, there's people that are going to have opinions on me that we'll talk about on other shows, that I don't give a shit what they think about, because when I look at their life as a whole, when I look at what their day-to-day -day is, when I see what they strive for, it's, they're things that don't even seem successful to me. They're, they're things that don't even seem like I would be proud of myself if I were doing them. I mean, jealousy is the furthest thing from the mind because I would be upset if I was doing what they were doing. And again... 
it'll come off as an insult when I say in more blatant versions of that about this person or that person because I mean to be insulting because I don't respect these people that speak negatively of me when I see them the way that I see them. But in the essence of the statement, I don't mean that as disrespect because other people's feelings who have nothing to do with your life, your path, your your mission, your agenda, your entire reason for being here, and they don't have any involvement in that one way or another, positive or negative. When their opinion becomes negative of you, it should have no impact because those people don't have they couldn't make your situation better if they wanted to. They don't, they don't, you know, they're not on the team. So you, you can't let those things weigh heavily. And I've become far better at that. But like I said, as I see negative outlets, as I see people who have nothing but bad to say to me, I make sure that they lose their platform to do so. I won't have discussions over and over with people that I don't get along with anymore. There's no way that I'm going to open up Facebook every day and be like, let me see what this asshole said today. Not anymore. I'm getting rid of assholes. So that way, I don't have to open it up and say, I can't believe this opinion again. Well, why, why can't you believe it after they've proven themselves time and time again that what they're worth is what you see? And what they strive for is something that you wouldn't be proud of. So those things have changed quite drastically for me. But the reality of the other things that, I, that I've laid out in this are very real. So it's still a battle. It's still a struggle. I, I talk shit about the things in the wrestling business because I see a lot of it as a complete joke. I see it a, a lot of it as things that they don't take seriously. They have allowed so much of it to become a complete joke and a throwaway no big deal kind of thing so my harsh comments on it should be thrown away just as much as their passion for doing things at a high level for them to throw away their intention for it to all look as high quality as possible to invest in their product, to invest in themselves, to present themselves and their product as something that they should be proud of, when that falls so far short of it that it's a laughing inside joke to even them, well, then I'm not going to have any lenience. I'm not going to hold back. I'm not going to keep your feelings safe because first off, you don't like me to begin with. Second off, the things I'm talking about isn't even something I'm passionate about. It's just something that I feel like I, I know enough about and I have enough of an opinion on to speak on. So I do. But make no mistake about it, I don't listen to anybody else's podcast to hear what they're saying about me. But people do listen to mine to find out what I'm saying about them. So take that for what it's worth. It's not going to happen in the other direction. So take stock in that and figure out whether you should be listening to mine because I don't think you should if your entire agenda is how much you hate J-Cat amongst your indie wrestling life. You know what I mean?
Um, so the other thing that, that's been uh, very, very difficult for me and has added another layer to my um, anxiety is something that's going to become very, very real and continue to be very real until I get um, movement on this. And even when I do, it's going to be scary um, because about a week ago, out of all the things that I've laid out for you with these cats and everything that's going on, a very pregnant calico has decided to start walking up to my door. You know, I, I have a full house. I'm very happy with the number that I have. I have no intention on getting another cat. Um, under no circumstances will I take in another cat uh, to be mine, to be permanently here, um, because I feel that my situation is very under control, and I've watched too many people go out of control. Um, although I have more cats than most people, you know, um, you know, your your common person has a cat, two cats, maybe three cats. You know what I mean? So having, you know, more, I understand, um, to some people may seem like, oh, well, that's a lot. But I have it under uh, very specific circumstances. I, I did this over 21 years of, of learning the ins and outs and dominance issues and uh, separation of this cat and what cat can live in this type of environment and what cat can live in, in that type of environment. Um, you know, they, there's some that have separate rooms. There's some that have, you know, different uh, situations. And, and I have it all very, very well worked out. So um, I, I refuse to create a bad situation out of something that's not. Um, because many, many hoarders, I've, I've watched this over years of doing my, um, my you know, my work at the shelter because we, I mean, we had to take in so many cats from hoarding situations. A couple of my cats came from hoarding situations. Um, but the thing about that is, you know, you can see where the good intentions were in the beginning. And then they just overburdened themselves to the point where they became a bigger part of the problem than they were as part of the solution. And it's such a shame because so many of them started out with such good intentions and in the end, they're the ones that now the people left with good intentions have to fix something because of. And I, I always made sure that I didn't create a situation amongst myself that became part of the problem because I've just seen too much of it. So there's always a very, very conscious way of taking care of things with my animals to me where I, I, I know my cap. I know my ceiling, and, and I'm not going to go above it. So, um, anyway, this calico who seemingly is very pregnant, um, uh, my, uh, one of my twins goes to throw the garbage out the one night and goes, oh, there's a cat out front. And I look, and she has what's left of the sunflower seeds I had fed the squirrels that morning with their peanuts um, stuck to her nose, and she's feverishly eating sunflower seeds off of my porch. And... I can't put into words how much that breaks my heart. I just can't. And there's a lot of people that may not understand that. Maybe people will make fun of that. I mean, if if you're listening this far into my show and making fun of words that I'm saying an hour and 30, 40 minutes in, I'm not the joke, you know. Um, and I just, it, it just rips my heart out, man. And, I want to help her. I just not helping her is not an option. You know, my oldest daughter just last week saw a fox across the street. It was a mangy fox that ran across the street. 
you know, which puts me on high alert because I have chickens, and, you know, my chickens don't come out in free range, but, you know, I have to make sure their pen is, is really secure, and, you know, I have wire buried, I have uh, predator lights back there, I have a lot of things to really ensure safety back there, but the bigger and the more predators there are, the, you know, it's just like if you, you know, made a an army base or something, you know, and you or you have some kind of fortress, well, if there's three people trying to break in, you know, your security will hold up. When it becomes 200, you know, you're like, eh, how's those walls looking? You know, like, uh, you got any swimmers in that moat over there? Like, what the fuck? You know, like, it's it becomes a lot more tense. And amongst everything else, it's the last thing I needed is to ramp up any avenue. But this is this is what happens. The world doesn't stop because something's going on with you. Um, so she shows up at the front, and again, I just a couple weeks ago saw like five raccoons, like just whoa, shit, you know. Um, so this scares me. This worries me for her, for her potential kittens. I want to say that she's pregnant. She may be nursing because sometimes when I, you know, if you can't get your hands on them, um, they'll look on the surface as if they're pregnant but they've actually given birth already and the glands that, you know, their, their milk glands are all swollen up from them nursing and they'll still appear pregnant because they'll still be very big, still be hanging very low. But at that point, it's mostly the, the milk glands that are all filled up because they're, you know, feeding six kittens or whatever it is. So I'm not fully sure, but I'm pretty sure from my view that she's pregnant, not nursing. But again, if I find out the other way, I'm going to try to trap her. Um, but we went to Atlantic City with the kids yesterday, um, did the boardwalk and the Lucky Snake and all of that stuff, and, um, walked down to that mall, which, if someone could explain what the fuck is going on in that mall to me, because I feel like it's, the, like, it's like one of those zombie games where you walk through and everything's, like, pristine and shining, and every once in a while you see somebody, like, come out of the cut with a mop and just doing a mop thing but like all the fucking stores are closed it's the most beautiful mall i've ever seen in my fucking life you know the thing goes out onto the fucking ocean it's got fucking boardwalk boards as the bottom the lights up top are all crafted in different ways and there's different uh like uh facades and like you know you go down you go on the second floor it's got like a different thing or the top floor is like waves on the ceiling and there's all these little sandy side things with plants planted and a fucking ocean view with beach chairs you could sit on and look out the fucking windows and there's like a, a just a smattering of people here and there who are just kind of walking through to get some steps or are enjoying the view off of the thing, but all these fucking businesses are closed. There's some coming soon signs, there's an occasional store open, but it's mostly fucking pristine and closed, but still open in the middle of the fucking summer. And if you look online, it says like it's open. And then you look on some of the signs, it says coming soon, but it doesn't tell you when. And we're in the middle of the fucking summer, and it's just open for people to be in, but nothing really popping. And like I said, you get these weird fucking zombie vibes. Like, it's just too fucking good. And then you turn to Grim. <laughs> you know, like, I, I don't know, man. It's just it's just some weird shit. Uh, we went on my birthday, you know, March 28th. And uh, we went down there for that. And me and Nina walked down there. And when we came home, we told the kids, like, you wouldn't believe this shit that's going on with this mall. So then we walked down there with them to show them. And they were like, what? 
was like, yeah, it's, it's wild. So we walked down there just to show them that and whatever. It was, you know, it's a long, it's a nice little trip. A lot of, a lot of kid complaining and stuff, but we did fine. Uh, got there and back and, you know, did the lucky snake thing and all of that. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a good time. And then we went back up in the ocean, uh, burger and some fries and headed home and all that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so I didn't want to set a trap last night or the night before and have like a brand new thing going on because, you know, if I get this pregnant wild cat in my house, I'm going to have to get her into the dog crate that I have in my kitchen. I really don't have another place for it. Potentially I could set her up in my gym, but I don't have air conditioning in my gym. So I, I can't really put her in that room knowing that it's going to be 90 degrees and that room's going to be fucking sweltering because I'm not going to put her in a bad situation. So she would have to be in my kitchen on the, the crate and in the crate. Well, they should be in the crate regardless because that's the way I'm going to have to acclimate her and uh, allow her to safely have her babies if she's going to have them, whatever. And then I have to network and I have to find homes for all these babies. Um, I already have someone that's going to, f- to pay to get her fixed if needed on the other side of, well, it will be needed, but... Um, you know, if I get her and the kittens and all, you know, everything has to like fall into place. We're, we're a ways away from just fixing her, but I have like that part of thing handled as far as her being spayed. Um, so that'll be at least taken care of. And I borrowed a trap from someone as well. Uh, my friend Holly is the person responsible for both of those statements. Uh, I should have laid that out first, but anyway, um, and, uh, so, but like, this is, again, this is it's like an anxiety where like, I want to help her, but I don't have the connections or the facilities to do what I did before. This would be so easy if it was what I was before, where I was before, but it's not. And now it's like I can trap her, but like if I can't find homes for these cats, what the fuck is, I can't, I cannot have more. And, um, you know, the kittens I think would be the easiest part of it, obviously. Um, But, you know, I think we're going to have to cross all these bridges when we get there. Um, There's no way of me just ignoring this cat that's coming up to my door now um she's a beautiful calico and she deserves better as so many of them do um again it's 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 so hard to have to be separated from the situation and and not have a hand in it but for a cat to deliver themselves to my door literally i don't know you know you start to think is like a you know is this a sign i'm not one of those guys really but it's one of those things where you wonder you know um even amongst my content, I would craft all these different things and think up, okay, I'm going to record this. I'm going to present this with this way. I'm going to, okay, I got to fold my couch blankets. I got to do whatever in the background. You know, you all these thoughts to put into things. And the one night when I saw her, I filmed her through the door and just said that she deserves better. And it was really all there was to it. And I got easily as many views and likes as any other video that I put up, which Again, it's never been about likes and views or anything like that, but, you know, what if what if this gets more attention and opens doors for me to continue to explain all of the things that we can do? And and I don't have, you know, up until this, this potential point here, I don't have, like, a front to back from the day the cat got in because, you know, a lot of the stories that I have videos and I have these documentations on, I can give you the full story from front to back. But the problem is, is in my work where I was, 
it benefited me to have footage of a cat on the on the side of recovery. Everybody knew the negative side of things because that's all they talked about. But when you presented positives and you documented your positives, it became hard to deny that positives happened. So now when I'm presenting the whole story, I don't have quite as much of the aggressive side of that cat documented because that would almost be me compiling a case for them in the moment because I didn't have this this out game this 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 end game where i was going to be exposing everything or saying this and that there was there was only me recording things to prove to other people who didn't believe that this cat started to make progress so i don't have the documentation of look how aggressive this cat is quite as much as a couple that you can see clear clear progress through my videos but to say that i had it from day one when this cat was the most aggressive and never Across my mind to really document much of that because it only provided proof to why that cat shouldn't have been there that day. And although I had confidence that we would get to the other side of things, showing the whole picture from that angle didn't make sense to me because, again, you didn't have to prove the negatives because it was the first thing they pointed out. It was the first thing that they leaned on. And there's cats that I got to come around and they would still talk the negatives as if they were still persistent as if they were still present so the only thing i could do was document the positives to make sure that no matter where i was if that conversation sparked up about said cat i'd pull my phone out and go hey look at this you mean this cat and they go hold on oh i didn't know she you know yeah because you didn't you didn't put the effort in to even know you just based your opinion on the start and left it at that so you know, again, this, this provides a different angle to things if I were to, and I would just for the sake of, if I were to use it, document this entire process. But again, it doesn't, it doesn't even weigh as heavily into the situation as it does just the reality of it. The cat and myself, how does this affect me? How does this affect her? And more so than anything, her and her future and her homes, and that's why I'm in the world of having to do something for this cat. So, um, now I've talked two hours, almost two hours about myself, so, um, I appreciate y'all if y'all listen to this. If anyone out there listened to this entire episode, anyone, I appreciate you. Um, this means you care about me a little bit, and I need it. I need every bit of it. Um, people who hate on me, y'all motherfuckers ain't unique. There ain't shit unique, special. There ain't shit about you that anyone's looking up to. Hate is easy. Hate is easy as hell. Finding ways to motivate people, finding ways to make people feel better about themselves is, is what I really, really value in life. And I do my best to try to make that part of what I put back, put back out. And that's why I did so much of the motivation on Mondays and the, the videos all all were based in trying to teach people what they didn't know or what they might not have done before, and I didn't know at one point either. So if I could help to show you from my angle, not as an expert, but just from someone who's done it and maybe thought he couldn't, you know, and that's just what I'm doing now. Again, people will look at the things that I say about deathmatch wrestling, about wrestling, about this wrestler, and he's vicious, and he's an asshole, and he's this and this, but I really think if you look at the basis of who I am as a person instead of the fact that I'm just not respecting your fucking heroes, your warehouse living, apartment dwelling, basement living, 
fetish bleeding heroes. I don't respect them. And if you can get past that, I think you might be able to find something in me that you respect. And I'm very open to look around. I look around at everybody and I find things that I can respect in people and the kindness that I can respect in people and the, the willingness to continue to push themselves despite the fact that negativity holds them down, that, that darkness holds them down, depression, struggles, things that they continue to fight through. I can gain motivation from those people and I hope that I can put some of that back out there so some of these people can continue to fight because this shit isn't easy, you know, and it doesn't get easier, it really doesn't, at least for me it doesn't, the hand I've been dealt is, is heavy, this shit, this, this deck of cards is, is made of bricks or something, because this is a heavy, heavy hand of cards that I've been dealt, so, um, I appreciate all the support, please continue to do so wherever you can, um, like I said, that, that doesn't just mean financially, that just means just everything, you know? It's always included, but it's never the forefront of things. The forefront of things is to support emotionally, support, um, you know, finding new avenues to, to help me push my word. You know, if you know cat pages or animal pages and you think, man... If they saw this video Jay made, they'd really be into that. Puppet pages on my puppets, uh, uh, gardening, gardening things, uh, physical things. These, you know, things where you think there's other avenues that someone might be interested in. You know, people go out of their way to get people noticed that they want to be noticed. People show up in public events with signs that say shit just so someone will look up what the fuck they're talking about. You know, I'm not telling you all to walk around with signs, but if you wanted to really extend yourself for me and find ways to promote some of the things that I do to get me help, and it doesn't have to be on your fucking pocketbook. It doesn't have to be on your, your wallet. It doesn't have to be, oh, well, I, I gave him this much money and I did everything I can. It can be where you're somewhere and I, I haven't seen this person in a while and the animals come up and you go, bro, you should really check out Cat's page. And maybe I get another follower that day. And maybe that person is able to get me another follower. Two more followers. And this is how it all builds. You know, the Kevin Bacon effect is how we have to get to celebrities and people with the big money that can actually make differences. That can maybe give me the reins and allow me to run an organization to better cats' lives. Because that's what I feel I'm here for. Maybe maybe someone of a higher standard or higher... Uh, expectation for animals is running an organization out in California and once they hear about me they would love to fly me out there and have me do a, a conference for them or a, or a presentation for them on different things that we can do to, to better these cats chances and it's these type of opportunities that I need in life but it's not going to happen as a direct route you can't just email celebrities you can't just there's filtering systems for all of this but the more the crowd speaks, the more everyone hears it. So whether it be, you know, like I said, spreading the word, fucking, uh, like I said, signs isn't really what I'm talking about, but signs, fucking saying this, uh, hashtagging that, like just putting my fucking name in spaces where it makes sense, where people may follow up and become viewers, become something. 
I plan on getting back to my content, but I, I just I need to pause right now and um, try to figure out exactly what it is. Remember I talked about I was even going to do a Twitch. I haven't even got that off the ground. The camera that I bought to do the Twitch, the PlayStation camera hasn't come out of the box yet. So you can see how some shit just hits a complete halt with me and then I get no further. I hit a mental block or a you know, technology block or something that I don't feel like I could overcome and I just move around it and I keep going. And I push forward on the other things that I can. You know, I, I do my best to work with what I can and uh, accept what I can't. And besides that, try to come back to the things that I can't and continue to push at them when I find new angles or avenues to do so. So, like I said, a uh, long way to keep saying thank you, but that was a 90-second uh, warning from Blog Talk. So I'm out of here. Thank you guys very much, and um, that's it, man. Let me see. I got to actually look for my outro. Remember that shit? Usually I've been finding it, but I, I'm kind of sidetracked with this show and stuff. So love y'all motherfuckers. Peace. Talk to y'all later. Have a nice night. Stay dry. It's raining again. I'm tired as rain. Makes my grass green. I won't complain about that. That's all I gotta say. I'm out of here. I love all of y'all and, uh, shit. You're all a bunch of fucking assholes. You've been in the gym, bro. You know why? DJ Hyde, fuck you. You don't have the guts to be what you want to be. You need people like me. I'll listen to your, to your podcast and I'll find everything out. You know what I mean? You need people like me so you can point your fucking fingers and say, that's the bad guy. So, what I make you? Good. Like Cheese tell me, tells me all the time to listen to what you got to say because you be blazing people. And I'm like, well, I got to hear it now. <laughs> you just know how to hide it. Me, I don't have that problem. Me, I always tell a truth, even when I lie. The Truth Against Radio. Jesus. A sacred night to the bad guy. I'm gonna tell you something straight off the motherfucking press. I ain't coming for no foolishness.